VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. No, no, no. And here we go. Everything from here on so in is recorded. So we're going to make it work. Yeah, it's really it'll be absolutely fine. Uh, this is uh, this is me and Annika Rice, by the way, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, Jane is still away on her holidays. I won't give away her destination, but I think. What it's, do you think she's doing right now? Oh, she will be just getting towards what time is it? It's approaching five o'clock. Oh, she'll it? be well under the table. By she now. will. Yeah. She will be trying to finish off the last chapter in the Ken Follett book. She always likes to go away with the Ken Follett, or maybe a Robert Harris. Uh, she may well have had her first Campari and soda oh, yeah. of the evening. Will her dutiful children be lining them up? No, I don't think so. I think she's kid-free this week. Oh. Yep. Well, she'll definitely be lining them up. Yeah, but I think she's basically on a... Um, it's a friend's 60th birthday party. Mm. So she is on a booze cruise. Oh, my God. Around an Juan Italian island. will be island. lining them up. <laughs> Fabrizio. <laughs> But I'm sure she's having a lovely time. I hope she's having a lovely time. It does mean that I have the pleasure of your company today and on Thursday and on Tuesday and Wednesday, it's Claire Balding. I know. Always a joy. And we are both very much enjoying uh, calling it the Claire Balding Sandwich Week. There's no other word for it. There's no other word for it. Uh, So we met, because we should do this, shouldn't we, for our lovely listeners. Um, We first met, you reminded me of this when you came into the studio this morning, uh, about 10 years ago at the inception of me and Garvey's on-air relationship Yes, you just started. You you barely made eye contact because, you know, it's like a first date I was witnessing and you were doing very... Uh, grown-up presentations with all the great and the good in the radio world and I think I was booked to abseil in um, pro- so, probably in a Lurex jumpsuit and run onto the stage say hello and then and then we all sort of slightly disperse but you and Jane have stuck as this force of nature yeah we were at the radio festival in Salford yeah. weren't we yeah and it was about a decade ago, and it's because Jane and I then sat in a dressing room together for long periods of time over those couple of days, waiting to do our introduction to the next session, and just had quite a lot of gas bagging fun together. You did indeed, and, and, and you born. developed it into a, a, a whole brand of gas bagging, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. And then, of course, I did, fortunately... Uh, your other podcast do we mention that yes well, it's there on we do because and it's nice yeah it's, it's you good. know it's a body of work yeah, it's, that a body of, it's your oeuvre, it, that oeuvre. Is, you know over there and now we're uh, over here now you're over here uh, but after I did that uh, and we talked about 
fallopian tubes and all sorts of things. Anyway, I slightly fell in love with you both and so I think I invited you for a Christmas lunch. And as far as I was concerned, Fee, we had done the gastronomy, does that make sense, equivalent of, you know, blood blood brothers, blood yes, sisters. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is lovely new friendship. Cause you, you can never have enough friends. Never heard from you again, is it? <laughs> Okay, and I tried. I tried so often. Why didn't you all come over to the Isle of Wight and made it so easy for you? I'll pay for your ferry. I'll pick you up. Absolute tumbleweed. That's not true, so Annika. True. It's so not true. true. Uh, so there was some enthusiasm to come to the Isle of Wight, but there wasn't universal enthusiasm to come to the Which Isle of Wight. Which meant that you quite liked the idea, but by that stage you were so entrenched, you know, like the ant and debt with the Jane and Fee, that you couldn't do it on your own, <laughs> which I thought, hmm, a bit pathetic. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. But it's all right because me and Nancy are very happy to come now. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure Jane would love to come as well now. So let's not ever, ever leave. Well, no, Nagavi I think out. always leave the, the door open. Yes, always. For reconciliation. Yeah, no, definitely. And we don't want to start some kind of terrible womanly thing uh, where we're setting each other up against each no, other. No, I. Because do you know what? In, yeah. in all honesty, an awful lot of uh, female friendships run aground on that kind of uh, you like her more than me type thing yeah. goes down. Well, the thing is, I'm I'm easy on this because neither of you like me at all. So it <laughs> Annika, was this easy. is so not true. <laughs> it was really, true. really easy to cope. You know, it's, it was linear. Really, there were no subtext. Anyway, it is really lovely that you're here now. You're extremely welcome uh, as co-presenter of both the on-air show, three to five, and off-air the podcast. And we had a right old blast today, didn't we? Because, uh, and we'll get to him in just a couple of moments' time, Giles Brandreth was our guest. And you just have to ask him one question, that's it. He's off, he's off. And I've known him for a thousand years. I think we both started on TVAM, which used to be the sort of breakfast show on ITV. And I used to always be rather worthy because I was the sort of the news person um, interviewing politicians about the economic strategy of the, you know, March 1982 or whatever it was. And Giles would come on in a bright red jumper, often with flickering lights and a giant ice cream cone on the front. And I, I never could quite understand what he did, or you know, but he was a force of nature. And the good thing about Cl um, Clive, I keep calling him Clive because of Clive Anderson on Loose Ends. Good, the great thing about Giles is that once you're once you've met him and he likes you, he scoops you up, and you're you're with Team Giles, and it's it's been a lovely friendship. It's really weird that we met on a sofa. And I thought it was interesting, and you you'll be able to hear this in the interview that you did. Uh, just ask him what on earth he was doing when he was working at TVAM. Yeah, I had no idea. Had no idea. And 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 actually, it's funny because I don't. I I know him as a former MP actually. And the first time I came across him through work was because he volunteered to do kind of politically um, interesting diary pieces for a couple of the programs that I was working for back at the previous insignificant broadcaster uh, uh but you're absolutely <laughs> right to kind of challenge him about exactly what it is that he does he had no idea half no, the time because way back then he had presumably just turned up in tv and gone i'm here i'm here and he just constantly reinvents himself um and we did have fun at tvam you know i always remember herb albert coming in once and me saying to him now herb it's great to talk to you but i gather you've got something between your legs you'd like to show us and because he'd brought in his trumpet and i remember giles and everyone that just collapse 
And I didn't really, because I was on a trajectory, I was you know, <laughs> working hard. Anyway, so the bloop, the bloops, as they called them, um, and David Frost used to collect mostly my bloops. What do you call them? Bloopers. 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 Yeah. And send them off to NBC or something in America. Um, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is your worst ever blooper? Was it that one? I, th- I think possibly that one. Um, yeah. Can't think of another brilliant blooper what's yours oh gosh well i did once say and it's it was in the coleman balls column uh oh, God, oh two terrible balls. ones actually i once said that for most of us death comes at the end of our lives and the other one that i said was uh <laughs> but no but that's true <laughs> but it's also asinine um and then the other one was that uh that we did have to do better education about uh, the use of condoms because it was a message that needed to be rammed home quite hard. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. But uh, you made Coleman balls. I'd forgotten that. Yes. That was a real and, sign of excitement, wasn't it? Well, Making it was it. the only thing that really genuinely made my dad kind of chortle and... Proud. Yes. <laughs> no genuinely. It was that. Nothing else. <laughs> Just the cock-ups. But I think there would be many more, actually, Annika, but we'll pass over I can't, I can't. Luckily, they've, you know, I'd have to ask Giles. He would know. He's probably written a book about my bloopers. He's written over 100 books. So if there's not one about, you know, my particular personal bloopers. Yeah, that would be astonishing. But he is funny because he is my neighbour, and so I do see him quite a lot. And uh, he's an absolute force of nature. I must get you round, Annika, because Hayley Mills lives around the corner from you, and then you'll have this sort of glorious dinner with Hayley Mills you know he does know everybody doesn't he and do you move in very showbiz circles no not at all I really don't at all I don't at all except you know Giles helps me out with that by occasionally giving me a bit of glitter and excitement (laughs) no I always seem to be on a shift somewhere or in a drafty basement wiring something you know because of my job I'm on a building site aren't I a lot of the time or you know, it's not. I haven't chosen the glamorous path. No, but you are a glamorous person, and it's interesting watching you come into the building here today because everybody knows who you are. Uh, we have quite a young workforce here, yeah. And maybe that's me just saying that because I'm a bit older now. Well, they're but about they, fifty-five. They, <laughs> it's very cruel. <laughs> You've got a dark side to you. I've Rice. got a very dark yeah. side. Um, no, we've got lots of people in their mid-twenties and upwards working here, but they know who you are too. And I wonder how how does that kind of level of recognition sit with you? Do you ever just get fed up with it? Do you it? know what? I've just, um, I've just always had that because even when I was a youngster, um, I joined the BBC on one of their training courses literally 47 years ago now. And after that, I went to work in Hong Kong and I became a newsreader on television so age 19 i'm reading the news every night and already that that whole thing started but when i got back to the uk i thought i'd carry on with my career as a journalist behind the scenes so i applied to the bbc again and then my career took such a swerve because i got the job on treasure hunt which couldn't be further from a newsroom except that kenneth kendall was in the studio oh he was terribly it. serious wasn't he, was he? Terribly with serious. His, his, his great big maps yeah, and pushing things around i know i know so um my my career did take a big swerve but it has meant i've been famous all my life 
And the funny thing is, when I had small kids, I um, gave it all up. I just went to the BBC and once I'd done a few years of challenge, Annika, and I said, if you don't mind, I think I'm just going to have a break. And I gave up work for about 10 years when my children were very young. But I forgot you you'd actually don't become unfamous at all. So, but but my children laugh because their childhood was extraordinary because they just think the world is full of lovely people because wherever we went, everyone went, come in. You know, we'd go to Heathrow and some lady would appear and take us backstage and, you know, we would never have to stand in a queue for anything. So they got a very warped sense of life. But I was all the time pretending I was just a very normal mum. And when you took that decade out, uh, was it, did you find it fulfilling? Did you regret not staying working? No, didn't look back for a second. It was extraordinary. I enrolled at Chelsea College of Art because I thought I needed to do something to put all my energy because I'm very energetic. And so I went and painted and I'd get home from college and I'd have my paintings and my children would come home from nursery school and they'd have their paintings. <laughs> It was a really happy period of my life because I just did walk away from it completely. Mm. Uh, so lucky to be in a financial position to be able to totally do lucky. that. Yeah, yes. that was the reason I, I could yeah. do that, obviously. And is there genuinely no place that you can go in the world where somebody doesn't reference helicopters, jumpsuits and, <laughs> and challenge you? <laughs> of course there are. And I'm so liberated. I behave in a most liberated way. And it can be in, in all sorts of... Um, niche places um, but I realise I'm a completely different person you know at the moment I can barely get changed in a public changing room I you know I had to have to go into a cubicle I'd no more walk around naked would you no 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 but I wouldn't anyway whether I, no, I was gonna say but that, I think that's a all girls boarding school problem actually. I don't know where how I'd be if I hadn't always had that level of fame and people scrutinizing and writing about me I've no idea yeah, it's such a weird one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, it doesn't matter how often the stories are told of the corrosive nature of fame, it remains an incredibly powerful and it's alluring powerful, thing. powerful, but funnily enough, in my case, because I'd always had it, and I remember I started working in a newsroom backstage. I was the sub-editor. I did all the grime. I was making the cups of tea and the coffee. I, I did my apprenticeship and did all that sort of staging. Um, so I didn't I didn't go into it to be on the telly. That was just luck, well, mm. sort of luck, if you call it that, because the newsreader was taken ill in Hong Kong, where I was the sub-editor in the newsroom. And they never traced it back to you? <laughs> they never traced it back. He actually died. No, right, I'm and, sorry, uh, I regret <laughs> making that joke. No, but they, um, they said, uh, have you ever done any on-screen stuff? And I just said, yeah, thinking, how difficult can it be? And so I had 24 hours to psych myself up to becoming the the newscaster to the nation. And I was so nervous that on the way to the studio, I ran someone over. Oh, my word. Yeah, that was awkward. Well, were they okay? They were fine. Okay. And uh, it was a very, very crowded area of Hung Hum, and this guy was a bit off his face with drugs. So luckily everyone sort of just stepped over him and his face sort of sprawled down my windscreen in slow motion um, and the police were called uh, they realized the situation but meanwhile I was in a terrible panic I was shaking too much to be able to drive my car so they took me to the newsroom to do my first broadcast live having never done this before in a police car <laughs> 
It's insane. And that sort of really set the tone for the rest of my life, which has just been beyond off the scale strange. So it, I just get the sense about you that there's chaos trying to be reined in well, in Annika's life well, sometimes. I, I, the thing I have, which uh, most of my friends look at me as if I'm completely mad, I have no fear, weirdly. I have no fear at all. I have a huge sense of jeopardy. I'm always trying to, with my kids, to try and encourage them to taste fear because especially nowadays, lives are so sanitised and safe and protected. And um, So what, in, how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself by saying, yes, I'll read the news tomorrow night. Okay, no, but example. I mean for your kids, what do you try and... What have you tried to oh, get them to do? Occasionally I've done things like when one of my kids was at university, had no interest in acting, and I said, well, just go and audition and get the part and feel good that you've got the part and then just say, no, sorry, I can't do it now. And you did that, you know, and it's just putting yourself out there. Yep. Yeah. I used to do that in Hong Kong. I used to go for auditions. I remember there was a show called Tom Frulery, which is a sung-through com uh, comic pastiche review program written by this brilliant guy called Tom Lira and I went for the um, audition for it knowing I couldn't sing and because I looked like I might be able to sing and be a bit of a performer the, the producer was so excited when he met me to come in and sing and gave me one of the songs to sing and I just knew I couldn't sing I just didn't care and he went Oh, that that no, that's, that's good. Could you try it with a bit bit more force? Because I can sing in tune, but I've got a real sort of girly soprano voice. You know, I was always that person who sang the solo in Once in David Roll City, but it's never developed. Yes, whilst everyone a... hid behind their hymn books, <laughs> yes, going, okay, "What is she doing?" Anyway, so yeah, I Ooh. I do put myself out there to be scared, basically. Well, uh, I mean, like thank goodness you, yeah, thank, thank goodness, goodness that you do, because that's why you're here with us now. Uh, I also think it's worth saying, and we'll maybe talk about this a bit more on Thursday, um, I think you are a woman who underplays her compassionate contribution to society, because you don't make a big deal out of how much charity work you've done and the causes that you've supported. Just on the programme today, we talked about your work as a Samaritan and we then uh, talked about your experiences of uh, Alzheimer's, which both your parents had. And I think you're one of those very rare people, actually, in showbiz, and you have been in showbiz for most of your life, who really properly looks outwards, not inwards. Would that be fair? Mm, I, I do, I think, actually. Um, I do... I like to be part of something bigger than myself, definitely. And I mentioned on the programme this lovely Winnie the Pooh quote from Piglet, who I love. Piglet was so excited at the idea of being useful, he forgot to be frightened anymore. And... I, I always encourage people to get out there and volunteer and, you know, maybe do some befriending or what doesn't matter what it is, actually, but being part of a community. You know, I love a community, which is why I devised the, the challenge format, because it just seems so obvious to harness all that power of telly and, and put it into something useful. And all the volunteers that come along, that's why they come along. They love, it's like running away to the circus. And on the last series we do, we did, the volunteers were just so keen on taking part that they came with us from challenge to challenge. Extraordinary, they funded themselves. They didn't obviously get paid for it, everyone's volunteers. So Danny bought his digger 
just never every challenge we did there is Danny with his digger digging another hole um, and it's just so lovely isn't that just glorious but I think it just um, it it says something about human nature that we all want to help but what we often need is someone to go come on yeah come and do it no definitely we'll make it fun I completely there'll completely be bacon agree. butters come and get dirty so we're going to talk a bit more about Alzheimer's and we're, we're going to have two interviews in the podcast today. So Annika will introduce a really, really interesting playwright uh, who has written a fantastic piece about the experience of Alzheimer's and what music can do actually to people who are suffering from the disease. So shall I read the intro into Giles? Yes. Uh, which is just a hilarious interview. And he says it of himself that if you don't like name drops, it's not an interview for you. But here it comes. Uh, Giles Brandreth's latest venture is a podcast called Rosebud. It's about childhood memories and looking back to those moments that can then shape the rest of your life. Uh, it's a really stellar lineup in the series. Uh, episode number one is with Dame Judy Dench, who just happens to be a very close personal friend of Giles. Uh, we also know Giles for his wordcraft with Susie Dent once being an MP, his time on the sofa at TVAM, being a close friend of the royal family, biographer of Queen Elizabeth and one of the country's finest raconteurs. And then there are the jumpers. So we started by asking him whether or not he kept wearing the jumpers on a hot day like today. Well, the jumper is a good thing to wear on a very hot day because it works like a thermos flask. You know with a thermos flask, if you put ice into it, it stays cold. And if you put hot soup into it, it stays hot. A jumper is the same thing. Put a cool body inside a warm jumper and you stay cool all day. Put a hot body inside a jumper and you stay warm all day. You so, are turning my world on its head, Giles. It works. I told you it would be trouble. I so, just honestly have been warned. So I you. just, I, I, I love my jumpers. And I'm, I'm doing a, a, a tour at the moment with a show that I did in Edinburgh. And in it, I sport a jumper that is for the new reign. You know, new reign, new knitwear. And this has the new king, King Charles III, cipher on the front. And uh, when the new king saw this jumper, Oh, oh, by the way, if name-dropping is not your thing, please don't listen for the next 25 minutes. It's just going to infuriate you. Uh, when the, <laughs> I'm going to pick them up as you drop them. <laughs> when the new king saw me wearing this jumper, he said, I think it would be rather more effective. It was a hearth rug, don't you? Oh. I felt it was a bit disparaging, but there you go. Yeah, it was one of the first things that Annika mentioned uh, about her first memories of you, because you oh, two yeah. go way back. Back to mm. TV. And Annika yeah. said that she had yeah. to try and work as a serious journalist on TVAM with you wearing knitwear that basically had twinkling nipples. It More was... or less, because I, I used to sit in for Anne Diamond one I week do. in every five, yeah. and I'd be there doing quite a sort of erudite, you know, interesting um, chat with Dennis Healy about the economy. And then you'd be there, ready for the next item, with an ice cream cone on a bright red jumper. What were you doing there at that time? Well, (laughs) do you first remember the day that Willy Brandt, the Chancellor of West Germany, came on and he found himself sitting on the sofa, Willy Brandt, Chancellor of West Germany, between me and Willy Brandt was Roland Ratt. And this man didn't know what, he didn't know what, his English was impeccable, he couldn't understand what I was about, he certainly couldn't understand what the rat was about. But I was brought on with the rat. When TVAM began, it was the first commercial breakfast television station in Britain, uh, it was, very, it had high aspirations. David Frost, Michael Parkinson, Robert mm. Key, Angela Rippon, it was going to be the mission to explain at daybreak. 
but the people were not interested in having things explained to them at daybreak by these learned scholars and turned off in droves. In fact, they didn't even turn on. So after a few months, they got rid of all them. They brought in Anne and Nick, more accessible, and then they brought in Roland Rat and me. <laughs> and I remember... Were a you an MP at the time? No, I hadn't become an MP. Oh, OK. Then. And I had to keep quiet about it when I went <laughs> up to being an MP. Yes. And I was told by an advertising man, Maurice Sartre, he said to me, Giles, you're not a looker. You're not a looker, let's face it. Um, but television, 83% of what people remember is what they see, only 17% what they hear. And you think you've got the gift of the gab, but no one is interested. Most people, when you come on, are turning the sound down. If you want to be noticed, you've got to wear something noticeable. And that's how the jumpers began. I always remember Bruce Gingell, who ran yeah. the station. He made us all wear pink. Yes. He liked pink. It was very weird. No, it wasn't weird. It really worked. <laughs> Because the bright colours in the morning, people want a little bit of sunshine. Yeah. And there's lots of research that shows put people into a, a blue room and put people into a pink room and the temperature is the same, but you tell them you're turning down the temperature. The people in the blue room feel colder much sooner than the people in the pink room. Pink, yellow, bright colours. But you still haven't answered why you're on that sofa in a jumper. What were you talking about? I was brought on uh, to be a kind of a bit of light relief. To be, to be vaguely knowledgeable, but reasonably lucky. And I think I was doing the post. I came oh, in and read yes. the letters from the listeners. Yes, you did. Uh, but I loved it because, as well as being on the programme, you then got to be in the canteen. It was a beautiful building. And you met so many amazing people. I mentioned Willie Brandt. But, I mean, everybody. I mean, Rex Harrison, of all people I met there. Anthony Hopkins. I sat down with Anthony Hopkins and he said, have you met Laurence Olivier? I said, not recently. <laughs> and then he did the rest of breakfast as Laurence Olivier. I mean, <laughs> what's not to like? Mm. It was glorious. And I like being at the beginning of things. Yes. That, for me, is exciting. And that's why, to be honest, I, I love meeting people. That's what gave me the idea for Rosebud. Now, do you know why it's called Rosebud? You two clever No, but I've, I've got a... I don't know about you, Fee, but I've I'm got just, a, a, I'm I reckon he's going to tell us. reeling from how clever that link is. Uh, so congratulations <laughs> on that beautiful turn. Beautiful turn. I assumed it was Rosebud because it's about the beginning of something. Well, it could be. And it is, in a way. But when I was a boy, my father had a favourite movie... And it was Citizen Kane, written by, starring, and directed by Orson Welles. And my father took me every year. There was some, a cinema called the Baker Street Classic in Baker Street in London. And he took me. There was a summer season where they showed this film every year. And I went. I never saw the film properly because we had to sit on the right-hand side of the cinema where smoking was allowed. Uh, in cinemas in those days, smoking on the right-hand side, no smoking on the left. My mother sat on the left-hand side and saw all these films. But I sat with my dad on the right-hand side and saw them through a haze of smoke. So I saw this film. And in this film, Citizen Kane, who's a figure like a great William Randolph Hearst figure, or dare I say it in this building, a Rupert Murdoch figure, a, a big, uh, you know, newspaper man, reflects on his childhood and he remembers, he has this memory of a sledge on the day he was taken away from his mother. And the sledge was called Rosebud. So the podcast begins with me asking the, the guest every time they come on, for example, Annika, when you come on, the first question will be, what is your very first memory? Mm. Not the memory that you remember from a photograph and therefore, oh yes, we were on the beach of Margate, but in your mind's eye, can you remember, the, mm. the what is it in your Well, case? mine's quite dark. What? Mine's being um, taken away um, from my home. I was about two or three and my parents disappeared and I was sent to be looked after by some people who weren't very kind to me. 
So actually, I wish you hadn't asked that because I'm now quite traumatised. I might have to take a small break. <laughs> well, that's fine. This is what we will unpack when you come on to Rosebud. That's why it's so intriguing. You actually dive straight in to people's But it's just interesting because, I mean, in a way, that, that uh, memory for me has defined my life in that I always expect the rug to be pulled from my feet and a degree of jeopardy, and I've made a career out of it. Yeah, and, and it has must, been again. Yeah. And you must find that yeah. uh, with your guests... Those early memories, they, they filter through life. Well, we've already done 13, and it's been a little bit disturbing with one of the guests. I won't preempt who it is. I asked the first question, and all we got were tears before the answer oh, well, came. Oh. So it's, but it's, and, and other people, wonderful memories, like, yeah. for example, Judy Dench, mm. which you've heard, or, or who we've got is Alison Hammond next week, who is just so infectious and full of fun and life. But then everybody, you find there's a dark side. I remember this years ago, I went to interview Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa. And you can drop another of your... Yeah, no, I'm on my there. hands and knees. <laughs> under, I was going to say underneath the desk. I went, I went to, She's absolutely wrong. covered in your rubble. <laughs> <laughs> I went to interview uh, Desmond Tutu. And he was one of the most wonderful people. Did you, ever, did you either of you ever meet him? No, no. He was like being in the presence of sunshine. There was a warmth about him. A sweetness and a warmth and a and I began the interview and he stopped me and he held my hand and he made me say a prayer with him. I thought, oh, well, but I went along with it, and we spent oh the day together. And by the end of it, I realised that this man who just gave hope and positivity to the world himself had a lot of suffering. Eventually, we were talking about his children and the problems with his son, with the law, with mm. drink, with drugs, all of this. And yet his job was out there spreading sunshine. So what interested me about Rosebud is we now live in an age where most, this is an exception, your programme is an exception, whereas most things outside of podcasts are soundbites. You know, radio, TV, it's a soundbite. Go on a chat show, Graham Norton, huge fun, but you're there to plug your product, get a laugh and move on. We want another A-list guest. And I thought, let me invite people in and let them talk. And, I, and I've deliberately asked people who I might not naturally be thought to like or be interested in. For example, I was in Edinburgh, doing the Edinburgh Fringe, and I thought, in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, who's the most famous woman in Scotland? Nicola Sturgeon. So I thought, I wonder if I can get hold of Nicola Sturgeon. So the way to... I, I tell you, I was taught to do this by David Frost. Remember David? <laughs> Bing! Uh, not everyone remembers David Frost, but he was a lovely person. He always phoned people up if he really wanted himself. So mm. I got hold of Nicola Sturgeon and said, would you come... To, to my flat, you know, really. I said, yes, it's quite respectable. I said, unless you're going to lend me your camper van, you'll have to come to my flat. So she came out of the flat, and we did, we talked for about two hours. What was her first memory? Uh, her first memory was a boy called Sparky. <gasps> Sparky's Magic Piano. Well, no, it was oh, Sparky's sorry. Magic something else when we got round to it. Oh. But we actually worked up to that. Oh, <laughs> But it was no. But what was quite interesting was that she clearly she, that Sparky was important to her because she was quite an isolated child. She was quite, and she felt she had to please people. And really, what I found interesting was spending two hours with Nicola Sturgeon, not talking about Scottish nationalism, not talking about politics, but talking about her, what made her tick, what it's like to be, you know, somebody who is in the public eye, who initially clearly wasn't a person built for the public eye. All very intriguing. So that's what the conversations are about, and that's why I'm doing it. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Giles Brandreth is our guest this afternoon. There are just so many things that we could talk to you about, Giles, but this podcast does sound really fascinating. And I was really interested that you have some quite young people in the podcast series as well as older people because it's definitely true isn't it that the older you get perhaps the more vivid those very early childhood memories can become as we like to return as elephants to the valley in our head so do you notice that there's a difference in the way that your younger guests answer the questions about their memories well some of the younger guests are still within their childhood it almost seems you know it's it's the day before yesterday their childhood it's it's much more it's much more vivid and, and easy going. Uh, and then they tell you things, and then later on, they contradict it, which is interesting. At the beginning of the conversation, because we do it over a, you know, a couple of hours, and usually at home, uh, we had a, a, a brilliant person called A.J. Odudu. Do you know her? Yes. Uh, she's fantastic, and she's such fun. Um, anyway, she was telling me about her wonderfully happy family and her parents now, you know, they, they, they love each other and they, you know, they're, they're married and it's all been brilliant. They've been married for sort of 40 years and AJ is the oldest girl, etc. And then towards the end of the conversation, it became clear to me that her parents lived totally apart. Uh, but in her head, they are still her parents. So they're still living together. It's still a happy marriage. It was just a sort of, she was expressing it in a different way. Mm. So what we've found with the show, it's like being in the psychiatrist chair without the psychiatrist. So I'm just staring Without up. Anthony Clare. I, oh, mm. gosh, I loved him. Do you remember him. that? Not only do I remember that, I was lucky enough to know Anthony Clare. Yeah. And I went when I was a bit unhappy. Uh, oh, Giles, you should have come and knocked on my door. Said I probably I wasn't have. born. No, well, <laughs> no I was unhappy. Funny enough... I was unhappy. It's a silly thing. I was unhappy in the same year that I lost my seat as an MP. People found out to me I was an MP. And I shouldn't have been. I was going to be swept out anyway, you know, in 1997. All people cleared out who were conservatives, or a lot of them. And they say you shouldn't take it personally, but I did. I felt rejected. But it was also the year I think my father died, and my brother died. He was only 51. And my sister died age 61. Mm. And my best friend from school, you may remember him, an actor called Simon Cadell. Yeah. He died. Happily, my wife still struggled on, um, but it was a lot of, oh, lot of trauma in the yeah. family. And I thought, I'm not as happy as I should be. And I thought, well, take professional advice. So I thought I'd go to the top. So go to the top. So I went to Professor Anthony Clare. I flew to Dublin and I sat with him. And we began talking about my father. And I said, now tell me about my father. He said, tell me about your father. He's just died. I said, oh, explain this to me. Why did my father talk about the Second World War sometimes, very rarely, when he did as one of the happiest times of his life? I said, he was in the army, risking his life for six years. He said, that's easy to explain. I said, oh, but please explain. He said, well, the men, the women, but the men mostly, the front line during the six years of the war, they were risking their lives on a daily basis, but they were also being tested on a daily mm. basis. 
And being tested, being challenged, is a key element to finding happiness. You very rarely find happy people sitting around not doing very much. Because we're programmed as humans to be hunter-gatherers and to do stuff and explore and push push ourselves. Absolutely. And then I said, what about my mother? Bombs were falling in London and she was looking after my three older sisters and yet she talked about the happy war years. And you say, well, again, that's easy to explain. There was a sense of community, of common purpose in London at the time, and that makes people happy. So unpacking happiness was interesting. So what the podcast is about is unpacking things. If you want a name drop, can I do another name drop? Oh, God, do, because I've got the dustpan and brush out. I'm now now sending myself up with name drops. (laughs) Impossible. (laughs) uh, This Friday is the anniversary of the death of Elizabeth II. And I've written a biography of her, and there's a new edition of it just out. And I put stuff in this conversation I had with the Queen once about the Second World War. And I think in the original edition of the book, I just had her talking about Winston Churchill and how he was her father's prime minister and how remarkable he was. But in this edition, because I thought it's a year now and this is quite, you know, why why not tell these stories? I, I, I wrote about how the Queen was happy during the Second World War at Windsor Castle because the entertainers who came to entertain the royal family, people like George Formby, and there was a woman who came called Florence Desmond. Have you heard of this woman? Yes. You've heard of her? Yes. She was an impressionist. Fee, you won't have heard of her. She was an impressionist. She did female impressions like uh, Marlene Dietrich, Mae West, Vera Lynn. And the Queen told me that if she hadn't been going to be Queen, she might quite like to have been an impressionist. And I said, really? I said, what can you do? She said, I can do George Formby. And there and then, she, the Queen She didn't do up, When I'm Cleaning Windows. She did. She picked up oh, an imaginary ukulele and Stop sang to me, it. When I'm Cleaning Windows. And she could do regional accents from all over the country. She could do people. Apparently, I didn't hear it, but apparently her Ian Paisley was to die for. Oh, I, I was to die for. I mean, like and, and this is glorious. And she could do things as well. She could do horses, different breeds of horses. She could do Frankie Dottori on the horse, jumping off the horse and feeding the horse. She could do Concord landing over Windsor Castle. The approach, <laughs> the wheels coming down. <laughs> This is all in one conversation. All in one conversation. All in one conversation. It's a heck of a conversation. It was a heck of a conversation. And then, of course, uh, you know, this is the trouble with you're with somebody. There should have been, there was an invisible moat always around Elizabeth II because she was the queen. And she was of, of an age, even when I was having this conversation with her, which was some years ago. And I went too far. I realized I went too far when we began talking about teddy bears. Because my problem was I couldn't talk about dogs and horses, which is a real love, because I know nothing about dogs and horses. So I was talking about teddy bears, because I know, you know, I knew that she liked Paddington Bear. And I said, what about Winnie the Pooh? And I boasted that I'd met Christopher Robin, the real... What, boasting to the Queen. She said, yes, I met him too. I said, oh, of course, of course, you did. You're the Queen. She said, well, actually, better than that. She said, better than that. In 1930, um, A.A. Milne wanted to dedicate his Winnie the Pooh songs to someone, and he wrote to my parents, the Duke and Duchess of York, and asked if they could be dedicated to me. So, yes, I have quite an association with Winnie the Pooh. I said, now, what about Rupert Bear? I thought, I'm not going to let it go on this. I said, well, I said, what about Rupert? Oh, sure, I love the Rupert Annuals. And she said, I encourage Prince Charles to read Rupert Bear. And I said, now look, Your Majesty, do you know that a lot of people believe that Rupert Bear isn't a bear at all? They believe he's a boy with a bear's head. He's got fingers, he's got feet, he's a boy with a bear's head. And she looked at me with a beady eye and said, there are some things in life I think it's better not to know. Yes, you cross, you, you swam across that moat, got out the other side and I did. shook yourself off in front of her. I did, I yeah, did. Bowed far. and made my way backwards out of the way. <laughs> 
Last time you came to see us on Times Radio, he's priceless, isn't he, Annika? Uh, we were talking about uh, Harry's book, Spare. It was just after the publication of that. And with your unique insider knowledge of the royal family, you did say that you thought it would be a kind of a mild cut, actually, uh, in the monarch's side. It wouldn't be a wound that would never heal. And I wonder whether that well, opinion has changed about at all now. right, isn't it? I mean, one of the things of, about writing about the late Queen was that she she had seen it all. This too will pass, was a phrase that she used. And whenever I think of a royal scandal, I think, of course, well, the Queen, she saw Mrs. Simpson and Edward VIII and the abdication. Then in the 1950s, she saw Princess Margaret and Group Captain Peter Townsend. Then there was Diana. These things, they come and they go. And uh, the, the fascination of the royal family is it's been there for more than a thousand years because somehow it adapts and goes on. And I think from the point of view of the king and the new queen and the you know, Prince of Wales, the Princess of Wales, the show is going on and, and proving successful. We're getting gradual change, but it's working well. So I think, yes, I, I would agree that. A, a, not a mortal wound, a cut. And of course, it's it's... But I think actually... They wish them well. I think they genuinely, the king obviously loves his son and wishes him well, wants him to make a success of his new life in California. Mm. Do you know if they're in touch much? I don't know if they're in touch much. No. <laughs> That's the only time that he's given a very yes, succinct answer. Yes, that one didn't go anywhere, that conversation, did it? <laughs> well, I like to think that my stories are accurate, even if they seem quite unlikely. I probably haven't got time for one no? last one. No, I'm so well, sorry, do Charles. Do invite me again, because oh, please come this back next anytime. one is a really corker okay. of a story. That's all I'm telling well, you. Well, can you just it's... pop round to my place? Because we're neighbours. You uh, can just pop round and have when a cup of tea and tell me the story. Rosebud, the podcast with yes. Annika Rice, maybe one of our Christmas editions, one of our Christmas specials. <laughs> Play your cards right, Fee. We might get round to you eventually. <laughs> eventually. Yes. Eventually. No, because we are doing younger people as well. Well, that's kind. As we oh, hang on. This, I, uh, suddenly this isn't quite so flattering. <laughs> so that was the one and only Giles Brandreth, and he is welcome. We could just have a whole... We could have a day a week dedicated to Giles Brandreth, oh, and he would joyful. never disappoint. I know. He's fantastically good value, and he must have a very, very patient wife. Uh, right, we're going to make a gear change now, because we also devoted quite a lot of time on the programme today to talk about Alzheimer's because we are at the beginning of World Alzheimer's Month, aren't we? There is so much that people need to know about the disease and uh, one of the things actually that you wanted to draw our listeners' attention to is how helpful music can be. So you had come across a playwright who is Matthew. Yes, now he has written an extraordinary play which is going to open actually tomorrow night in London. Um, and he's he talks about how dementia and Alzheimer's have affected one particular couple that he he writes about, um, and it's a, a glorious piece. And Matthew will tell us all about it. And what is your connection, your personal connection to Alzheimer's? Well, both my parents had Alzheimer's. It started with my dad and he just started behaving very strangely. And this was the 2000s when people didn't talk about Alzheimer's at all. I had no idea what it was. And he would ring up the police at three in the morning and say, my daughter, Annika Rice, has been abducted by terrorists. And so the police would ring me up um, at three in the morning and just check I hadn't been abducted. It's extraordinary how they had my number. But anyway, it happened so often. I was on sort of speed dial with the police and I had three small children at the time. I was busy doing a, a, a special project actually in, um, 
Sri Lanka post the tsunami. And so I was talking about breeze blocks with Save the Children. And this was this medical emergency I was suddenly confronted with. And I had no idea how to deal with it because I'd go to my dad and he'd be sat uh, frozen in his sitting room, staring at the table lamp, going, look at him, look at him. He hasn't moved for two weeks. What do I do? And to start with, I'd go, Dad, don't worry, don't worry, darling, it's, it's nothing. And then I realised that it was something, because that's what happens when you have Alzheimer's. So from that moment on, I just went with it, and you enter this very sort of dark parallel universe, hinged with, um, you know, a certain amount of humour. So I'd just go, don't worry, Dad, mm. let's go for a walk. He'll be gone by the time we get back. And from that moment on, my life changed forever, it seemed. And I went, I had 15 years of going down quite a dark hole. It was a horrible thing to deal with. And sadly, it really is an experience that more and more people are going to have taking care of somebody they love who has some form of dementia. So that's what we were talking about this afternoon in the studio. I used to take him into the doctors and say, what's wrong with my dad? And they'd give him a, a cognitive test and he'd pass it 10 out of 10. He did know who the prime minister is. You know, the, the, that's the problem with Alzheimer's. It's so weird. It, it just spins off in all sorts of directions. Um, for ages he thought he was in a health club and so we'd sit for he came to stay with us in the end because I didn't know how to look after him <laughs> but I'd sit in the health club with him and he'd go look at that Valerie Singleton she's gone right to the front of the queue for the steam bath and I'd just go I know dad those blue Peter presenters well, they they're so up themselves yeah. <laughs> but it must be it, is it frightening to you to think that that might be what happens to you too. There is no causal hereditary link, is there? Uh, I, I'm pretending I don't, because my mother also then got it almost the day my dad died. It's, but it's, it, but they were advanced age, you know. So uh, my dad was in his nineties eventually when he died. But it's just a terrible thing. I mentioned earlier the this dementia village project um, I worked on late late last year and. Oh, my goodness, it cracked my heart wide open because um, the challenge was to build this 60s village and there was a pub, a cinema, a cafe, a baker's shop. There was a record shop. You know, one one lady um, literally sat in the record shop all day just clutching her album of um, Elvis. And the idea was that dementia sufferers who use the centre at Age UK and Birkenhead, where the challenge was set, could safely wander around having a coffee, watching a film, um, allowing the 60s memorabilia to trigger memories. And it was extraordinary to see. And, and Lynn Hamilton, who, who runs Age UK, what a visionary you are, Lynn, because it was quite extraordinary. There was one guy, John, and I mentioned him because it links into our next guest. Um, I met him. He can barely talk. He grunts. When I met him, he had cuts all over him because he'd forgotten how to walk and he'd fallen over. Um, because with Alzheimer's you forget how to walk, you forget how to eat and eventually you forget how to swallow. And I sat with him and I just started, started singing rather spontaneously My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, which is what I used to sing to my parents. And he launched right in, word perfect. It was... It was so beautiful, that's the only way to describe it. So we had a big sing-song at the end with someone, you know, playing the piano in the, in the pub we'd built and everyone was perfect, having been completely off the planet in every other way. But it is an amazing way to connect through music and a play is opening tomorrow night in London, highlighting the effects of dementia and Alzheimer's by looking at the effect it has on one couple. It's written by Matthew Seeger, who should be there on the line. Are you there, Matthew? 
I am. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. This sounds so exciting. Um, the, the play is called In Other Words. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so, well, my experiences, uh, I suppose, inspiring me to write a play seems so similar in a lot of ways to what you just articulated. I was a university student uh, about 10 years ago now. I, I was studying at Leeds University and we were doing a sensory stimulation workshop in sort of applied theatre, an applied theatre module, and we were in a dementia care home. And we were sort of, we'd do a couple of weeks on each sense, seeing what would stimulate memory or sort of uh, be a catalyst for social engagement and things like that. And we decided uh, at the end of our first session to play, well, I sort of did some maths and figured out that if the average age was 80 or a bit, a bit older in the care home, 85, then the songs that they may have been listening to when they were in their 20s and 30s would have maybe been something like Frank Sinatra. So we decided to play a, a Frank Sinatra song at the end of the session. And I remember, I mean, it's, it, it probably is a life-changing moment for me, I suppose. But I remember going, and it was a room full of people with all different diagnoses of dementia. Some were hallucinating, some were nonverbal. Um, and we I placed these song sheets, Frank Sinatra, my way, on the table uh, in the hope that if we played the song and anyone wanted to try and sing along, they could look at the song sheets and sort of stood at the back and pressed play on this CD player. And it was it felt like like magic. Almost every single oh. person in the care home stood up. Oh. And that song, word for word. I mean, I was 19 or 20 years old. Mm. I'm 30 now. And it, it sort of formed pretty much the most consistent part of my career as a writer and actor now. This play specifically, but also working uh, to, to do with dementia in other uh, shows as a writer and performer. And so that was the inspiration for it. So the, the play... Uh, it spans 50 years of a couple, Arthur and Jane's life. And uh, uh, it's about their connection to a Frank Sinatra song, Fly Me to the Moon, and about how uh, that keeps him connected to her right through to the very end of his dementia journey. Um, uh, so that's kind of, yeah, that's the the lens through which we explore it. And it's it's a, a non-linear structure, isn't it? So that, uh, which, which, which totally, um, you know, explains the, the, the brain of someone with Alzheimer's. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think that's sort of, I mean, it's 75 minutes long, and I suppose that's the difficulty, such a complex issue. But we we start at the end, and then we see how they meet, but also we're able to come out, uh, myself and uh, Leanne Harvey, who plays Jane, we're able to come out and talk to the audience uh, um, and comment on the action quite a lot, which I suppose proves very useful in terms of, one, being able to reference things, but, but, but also it feels really important that we're able to fall in love with that couple, with their relationship with each other, and with us as the audience in order to uh, uh, do enough work to experience what's being lost and for that to have sort of the most profound effect, I suppose. Oh, my goodness. This sounds extraordinary. And it started off um, theatrically. Um, you took it online, didn't you, for a while? How did that work? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we we did it in uh, twenty seventeen first um, uh, in in London, and then we were remounting it just before the pandemic, and obviously we couldn't do that anywhere, uh, and so we 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 made like a online digital version, um, which we shared digitally, and with Players for Life, who were a charity we were working with at the time, they were able to integrate it into some of their uh, higher educational e learning resources and things like that, because I, I think it's a really interesting way. If, if you're a nurse or someone or a carer or something like that to sort of understand what it is to be as empathetic as possible and maybe place yourself in the shoes of someone living with dementia just for sort of brief moments uh, and, and that's some feedback that we've we've had from from how the play can affect people
So September is World Alzheimer's Month, so I'm sure that we will continue talking about the subject. And obviously, from the podcast perspective, if there are any stories that you would like to share with us, then we would love to hear from you. It's Jane and Fee at times.radio. And Annika will be back on Thursday. It is Claire Balding and Claire Balding before then. And also, I do just need to mention uh, our lovely new book that we've all been reading for Book Club. And that episode will be released on the 22nd of September so you've still got a couple of weeks if you've not yet read My Sister the Serial Killer by Ayinka Braithwaite have you read that book? No. Well, it's she our said book club. It yes, down. please do, yes. Annika. Please do. We would like yes. to hear your thoughts on yes. it too. I'm obediently. Can you just say I am writing it down? Yes. I, yeah. Excellent work. Yeah. Uh, I read it in two great big gulps mm. on my holiday, uh, lying on a sun lounger with Nancy, my greyhound, next door to me. So I really loved it for its pace and ability to make you want to not put it down. I've re- I've stopped watching telly. And I've started taking up books again. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm reading three or four books a week. At Brilliant. Well, if you can in read one that gulp, one. As you yes. say, because I've got nothing else to do when I think I'm in my leisure time. Really, really brilliantly written. I really can't wait to hear what our lovely listeners think about the ending. Mm. Because the ending really took me by surprise. And I had to read it twice because I thought, have I just missed something here? Uh, So all of your thoughts about that book, if you've already read it and you want to send us an email, just put book club in the title because that makes everybody's life a little bit easier uh, when dealing with the email inbox. And we will fully discuss it uh, on the 22nd of September. It's so lovely to have you here, Annika. I've loved it, Fee. I'm looking forward to Thursday. I'm so excited about Thursday already. Very much. I'm glad you mentioned that. Otherwise, people might tune into the radio show tomorrow and think well she didn't last long she's off yes they've got that clear building it's not x factor there's no there's no judges house we see jeopardy i'm expecting i know you are this is radio absolutely no jeopardy whatsoever i'm i'm gonna parachute out of the building now okay well i'm just gonna take the lift talk to you tomorrow We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.